Sandy Clough and Sean Trotar. Weekdays at 2 on Mile High Sports. Welcome to the show on a Monday. Um, did anything interesting happen this weekend? Between the last show and now? I'm trying to... Nothing, nothing crossing my mind. See, just the NFL draft, the Avalanche getting eliminated, the Nuggets blowing the Suns out in game one. In game one. Missing anything? The Rockies reportedly played baseball? Or something resembling baseball. I think they, yes, sir. Okay, they yesterday. Won, uh, yeah, they won yesterday. They won yesterday, but they... Uh, Buffaloes keep getting transfers from all over the to earth. Lose more than 110 games. They are. They are, which is why we're probably not going to talk about them today because we have more pertinent things to discuss. And obviously, I think we'll start that with the uh, proverbial elephant in the room, the Colorado Avalanches. Title defense run comes to an end in the first round, the very first win for the Seattle Kraken in a playoff series. The uh, Avs, to a certain extent on the national media, off the hook, despite being the defending champs because the Boston Bruins, uh, no other way to put it. I, I get it. When you have the President's Trophy, there's supposedly the curse and everything, but uh, Boston blew two of these games late. They lost in overtime yes. yesterday. They gave up the last goal, with a, the tying goal, with a less than a minute left. And uh, the best team in regular season history fizzles in the first round. So the, the Avs are off the, off the hook from the national side, but yes, the local side is, I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting to look at how this goes. Well, I, I think to, to sum it up concisely for me, and we were chatting about this a little bit before the show, the loss of the series to Seattle was neither inconceivable nor attributable to the forces of conspiracy. Conspiracy? No. Um, and that has been argued by intelligent people who ought to know better. Um, series was lost in in my view, fundamentally, because of irresponsible behavior off the ice by Valery Nishishkin. And his absence was in many ways the final straw, and you add to that the one-game absence of Makar in Game 5, which is, of course, on Makar. He deserved Mm -hmm. the the suspension. Whatever you think about whether Everly... Deserved one, too, and I suspect he did, but he didn't get one. But Eberle's attack on Cogliano robbed the Avalanche of a guy who was, I thought, instrumental in their win on Friday. Played more than 11 minutes, Mm -hmm. killed penalties. The one thing in this series that the Avalanche did reasonably well right throughout was kill penalties. Except for one game, they gave up two power play goals, but they didn't deserve to win that game anyway. And missing Cogliano last night, who had been the third-line center on Friday, forced the Avalanche to do something with Alex Newhook that ideally they shouldn't have had to do at all because, by all rights, he shouldn't have been dressing. He was the fourth-line center and actually played pretty well as a fourth-line center on Friday. But because Cogliano was out, Newhook joined Nieto and O'Connor on the third line. Mm-hmm. And among at least two players, possibly three, uh, the group that really cost the Avalanche the series, 
because they're either minor leaguers or they played like minor leaguers. That would be Newhook during this best of seven series. But it, the loss is not inconceivable. And, uh, you know, the Athletic did a pre-series analysis, which it gave the Avs roughly an 80% chance to win mm-hmm. the series. That's still a one in five chance that Seattle wins the series. And if Seattle was to win the series, they would have to probably go seven games to do it. And this series, by all rights, could have been over after five. Maybe should have been over after five. The sixth game was a reprieve for the Avalanche, but they couldn't quite duplicate in the sixth game. uh, I'm sorry, in the seventh game, what they had done in the sixth game. And, of course, in all seven games, they gave up the first goal. And it's hard to win series in which you are always chasing the game. Yeah. And they they did well to win three games because they sure weren't the better team three times. No, and I think that's the important thing to take away from this, that, yeah, are the the Avalanche more talented? Yes, on the top level, on the top top end, yes, they are. You'll you'll take McKinnon and McCarr and and Rantanen and I think even Georgiev, despite Grubauer's really really impressive uh, performance uh, and series. I, I thought Georgiev was fine. Yeah. And last night, you know, nothing he could do, really on on either goal. Uh, the second goal was a, just a mistake by Taves, and Taves uh, and McCarr were on the ice. They're the guys you want out there, and Taves made a mistake, uh, pitching in, which uh, gave Bjorklund, who was actually having an abominable series through the first six games a chance to be a hero with one good shot. Now, I understand he was technically credit with the other goal and he hit the post a couple of times and he had an outstanding game seven, but he stunk through the first six games and had Seattle had a better alternative, they might well have benched him. And I'm wondering if McCann had not gotten hurt, whether this guy would have even dressed out or, or would have been a key figure getting major minutes in a seventh game. But, but basically there are gray areas between the loss, inconceivable, inexcusable, and the end of it, which suggests on the other side of the spectrum that the avalanche got jobbed somehow. Want to know what you think, of course. Our, our call and text line is 303-831-1340. But let, let's go back to that Nachushkin point, because obviously you're sort of, uh, I wouldn't say you're pinning the entire loss on him. We know there are plenty of plenty of blame to go around, but, but it's pretty significant. But it was an example of irresponsible behavior that I think. A team that was pretty short of bodies injury-wise. I think injury bothered wise, the avalanche. It, I think bothered, the injuries are one thing, but to lose a guy. Because, because kind of you did something dumb. He did something stupid, objectionable, if not criminal. And, of course, the Avs looked bad in failing to address it in any kind of forthright, honest way. Obviously, personal reasons does not begin to cover as an explanation for his absence. He was irresponsible, and it cost his team. And I'm wondering, uh, and, you know, listen, I wondered something similar about Nazem Kadri after the 20. 
2020-2021 season right. when his it. buffoonery cost the Avalanche perhaps a Stanley Cup. Yes. And certainly their seven-game series with uh, Dallas. And uh, 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 that was 2020. Uh, the next year, of course, he got himself suspended in the playoffs. And I wondered if a guy like that could walk back into the locker room. Um, turns out he could. Uh, and they won the Stanley Cup last year before Cadbury left for Calgary. And I wonder the same thing now about Valeri Nishushkin, who signed a long-term deal. Eight years, $49 million. That yep. will be, uh, I imagine, based on what we know at, at this point, uh, somewhat difficult to void, although... The Avalanche may well try. It's possible. I, you know, you don't know if they necessarily want to, but it, you, obviously you could you could explore it. Th- this is um, the challenge. We'll have Kyle Fredrickson of the Denver Gazette to come on with us in about an hour and and talk about it. But uh, the it's not as if the Avs championship window is not still open. It obviously most certainly is coming into next year because of the top end talent that you have that is under contract. Now, worth noting, by the way, that next year is the final year. Uh, or pardon me, no, two years left for Miko Rantanen. So I, let's let's put that aside. For yeah, he's the, he's two, two years he's left not on that. But uh, everyone else obviously signed for the longer term, and that includes uh, Nachushkin. But when you look at the lack of depth that this team had, because in yeah. part it was it was certainly injuries, and injuries exposed a, a lack of depth. But there's a lack of depth, and there's a lack of depth in physicality. And you were still counting on guys like Cogliano, who is uh, you know an older player, to be able to carry a, a maybe more significant load in the playoffs than might be reasonable at this point in time. And with the exception of, say, a, a Logan O'Connor, who I think plays a rather uh, a physical, a game with significant physicality, not and that he's speed. out there bashing people, but he but he yeah. uses the body. That's he, is a lot not, of, he is not an especially skilled player, as we all know. No. But he plays hard. He is willing to be physical, and he is fast. And either as a third or fourth liner, he's fine. And I think that's what he was on a Stanley Cup champion. And you don't expect him to produce. But, you but look I'm at sorry, Seattle. you do expect the Alex Newhooks of the world to produce. And guys, for that sure. matter, the JT Confers, and Confer is a free agent who has likely played his last game. More than likely. Here. And I, I pick out O'Connor because, quite frankly, the Avs got beat by a team of Logan O'Connors. Uh, uh, four lines of guys like that who, who were mm-hmm. not afraid of throwing the body around, who have some skill but are not known as skilled players, who hustle, who can skate pretty well, yeah. and, and are not afraid to, to mix it up in the forecheck and throw the body around. And if you're the Avalanche, I think it's you can look at that and say, okay, but those guys actually, we can find players like that as long as you identify the right ones. Right. Logan O'Connor makes a million dollars. You don't have to go find superstars. Uh, it wasn't covered the, the bottom no, two lines of the crack. It's not they, superstars. They are stocked with superstars. They are sufficiently stocked. What with they superstars. need is better role players. And yes. I liken I liken the, the 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 shift here, and it's obviously very different because the Avs are the defending champs, but. What you saw with the Denver Nuggets this offseason when Tim Connolly moved along and when Calvin Booth took over. Calvin Booth took some of what Connolly had done and jettisoned it because he looked at it and said, okay, our our team is this. We have the best player in the world in Nikola Jokic. We have a very good player in Jamal Murray. We have a very interesting player in Michael Porter Jr. And then we have a very nice sort of glue piece in Aaron Gordon. 
But the whole idea is we are building this team around Nikola Jokic. What are the guys that are the best compliments for that? And so that's when you added a Bruce Brown and a Contavious Caldwell Pope and drafted a Christian Brown. Those kind of players come in, and then the Nuggets ignite. Which which one of those guys are stars? None of them. The point is that they fit well with your existing stars. And what Chris McFarland has to do now, the GM of the Avalanche, is find the guys that fit best around Kale McCarr and Miko Rantanen and Nathan McKinnon and build around that in those third and fourth lines. And there was a concern. We, we talked about it. A couple of people talked about it in town. During the trade depth line when the Avs stood pat and there were people wondering about the depth, concerned about depth. Is this team going to have enough to make a run? And it turns out they didn't. Now McFarland's going to have to learn from that, adjust and adapt. But you did give up significant assets when you made the deadline deals, not this year, but last year. Right. And other deals along the way have stripped them of draft picks. But you're not looking for stars. And prospects. I get that. But the bottom line in this series was they couldn't score. And they couldn't score on the power play. They couldn't score on the power play. But even five on five, beyond the top line, couldn't score. And it's hard to imagine Lars Eller as a second-line center on a Stanley Cup champion. Right. With all due respect, he's played on a Stanley Cup champion before, but he wasn't a second-line center on that team. That was the Washington Caps in 2018. I I think Rodriguez and Lekanen are guys you can win Cups with as kind of utility players you can move around on – any one of the top three lines, frankly. But you're right. Confer's uh, probably gone and the bottom six, or last night, bottom five, and basically six defensemen because Hunt played all of 41 seconds last night. Right. That, that was all the time he got. And so you, you had Jack Johnson who was a nice player last year on a third defense tandem when Gerard got hurt in the playoffs. He played almost 14 minutes last night. It was too many. Um, Eric Johnson had a terrific game on Friday night. Um, he and Gerard weren't as good, nearly as good last night as they had been together on Friday night. Eric Johnson is the one I feel for a little bit. I'm glad he got his cup last year. 35 years old, longest tenured Denver athlete present time. That's amazing. Major isn't it? professional sports level. And he is probably headed either for retirement or an extended career with some other team because his contract is up as of now. Um, for me in this series, and we talked about it right throughout performance fluctuation was the big issue Bednar called it inconsistency and he said his takeaway from the series was that Seattle was more consistent in what it did than Colorado was in what it did that the avalanche had periods and I I would dare say most all of the game on Friday night in which they looked like champions and made Seattle look like an expansion team. But apart from that game, 
I'm not sure there was any game during which you looked at the Avalanche and thought, there is a team that could repeat as Stanley Cup champions. And by the same token, there was never a point that you looked at Seattle other than perhaps the game on Friday night and said, that's a second-year expansion team yeah. that's got to pay its dues. I think that's that's the end of the story because you you do look at this team and you look over seven games, so you look, you know, I got a little over time, but 21 periods. How many periods were the ads truly better? Five or six of them? Oh, I'd have to go back and count. I, mean, if, I, I, I might give them three. But if you take on it Friday, literally, period, I might give them three. Yeah, they were they were better. So across I, the board. I mean, That's maybe true. better than five, five or six. Because I thought last night in the first period they were clearly better, certainly. But Seattle, let's remember, Seattle's hanging on to a lead in the third period, mm-hmm. right? Right. The score after two was the final score. Seattle outshot the Avs ten to seven in the third period. Didn't exactly and turn into I, the shell there. I thought. Uh, Georgiev had to be a lot better than Grubauer did in the third period. Now, mm-hmm. Grubauer saved him in the first period. That, that, that was a dominant period, uh, very much similar to the three periods that were played on Friday night, and the Avalanche should have been ahead by at least a couple of goals after one period, and they weren't. And some of that was their fault. Some of that was Georgiev, who summoned up uh, from deep uh, inside him uh, the will and the skill against his former mates to steal a game. And we were waiting, although the goaltending I thought was quite good in this series, I don't think before last night you could have said that either goaltender, quote-unquote, stole a game. No. The Az won the games that more or less they deserved to win. Might, might have been a little bit lucky. Seattle certainly deserved to win the games that it had won going into Game 7. Uh, Seattle had some help. Uh, from Grubauer that they needed last night, at least in the first period. But I thought during the final two periods of the game that, for the most part, Seattle was the better team and and deserved to win the game. Now, did, did the Avalanche score what appeared to be the tying goal early in the third period? Yeah, but even had that goal stood, and it should not have stood, it, 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 Friday night's goal by Byram, in my opinion, was one of those replay reviews that drives you nuts yeah. where you really couldn't determine whether the play was offside or not. But psychologically, I think it helped the Avalanche to finally get the first goal. Even though it was wiped off the board, they knew that it was pretty much a legitimate goal that just happened to get wiped out. They knew they were playing better. And even after Seattle scored, the Avalanche tied it reasonably quickly with, what, 40 seconds left in the first mm-hmm. period, which psychologically killed Seattle. I mean, it killed Seattle. And the last two periods, the Avalanche certainly uh, were the dominant team in that game. Last night's offside call was clearly offside. I don't <laughs> yeah. know how the officials on the ice missed it. There's no excuse for missing it. Uh, I, I've said before, what, what I can't stand are – the reviews that determine offside when it's like 50.1 to 49.9. Yeah. Right. right. And, and you can't really tell. And it's a matter of inches, if not less than an inch. In this case, last night, Lekkonen was a full stride offside. It was obvious to anyone who looked at the replay with a modicum of objectivity 
uh, which I understand in some quarters does not exist. And to expect it to exist is to be unrealistic. But uh, that goal should not have been allowed, and it was properly adjudicated. I don't even think the Avalanche were particularly upset about it. Uh, Friday night, I, I, <laughs> I, I would have been a little more upset, a lot more upset than I was last night about that call. But listen, all in all, the Avalanche had 18 power play chances. Was their power play better in the last two games? Yeah, a little bit. But the bottom line is two for 18 on the power play, and you lose a best of seven series by one goal in the seventh game. Sorry, your power play had to be better, and that can't be blamed two, two and on the bottom six forwards. If they had a power play success rate of a third, that's four more goals. Four more goals probably tips the series to the Avalanche. Oh, probably doesn't take seven games either. So if even if they had a power play percentage of a third, that would have been the difference maker. So uh, obviously a, a big a big problem there. The, the power play completely fizzled out. Uh, one of the major issues with this. Why don't you get your thoughts? It's 303-831-1340. Of course, the Denver Broncos had their draft uh, after the first night. How did they do? What did you like? It did. How do you feel about wide receivers, including the one they picked as their first selection and the one they picked up an option on? I'll explain next on My Life Sports. Sandy Clough and Chandro Tar, presented by Superbook Sports. Download the Superbook app and start winning today at Superbook.com. Here's Sean and Sandy. Well, before we get into the Broncos' rather limited draft, worth noting that today, uh, as expected, the Broncos pick up Jerry Judy's fifth-year option. He will be through the uh, through the 2024 season with the Broncos in that final year of the deal, making 12. Point nine eight million, and that that's an interesting part when you're talking about first rounders too, because the fifth year option has now jumped to such a significant number, it's no longer a, a slam dunk to extend all your guys. I mean, uh, I think Jerry Judy was one of the few bright spots on offense, especially at the tail end of the year where he, like, he looked like as good as any receiver right. in the game, really. Um, well, he was in that group among right. the best receivers. 600 yards in the last six games. If you take just the last six weeks mm-hmm. and compare them to the last six weeks of, oh, let's say a Justin Jefferson, the numbers actually for Judy were comparable yeah. the last six weeks. I didn't think there was any doubt they'd pick up the fifth year, did you? No. 523 yards receiving over that final six games and a, a, a three-touchdown game against Kansas City, of course, and in that finale, 11 catches 154. Uh, I I didn't think he was ever going to be traded, and uh, obviously they've they've got him set up. And and here's the other part of it too: Cortland Sutton and everything. Uh, what happens there, notwithstanding, uh, Jerry Judy's become the team's number one wide receiver. He's Russell Wilson's top target. He's the, the top. He's the top guy, and that's what you expected when he drafted him as high as they did in the first round. So Sutton was into, drafted in the second round. He wasn't right. You don't draft guys the, in the second round with the expectation that they'll be starting. 
wide receivers, much less number one. Right. Judy's the expectation are there, and it looks like he is is on the cusp of doing it. And of course, uh, the Broncos will pay a lot in the 2024 yeah. season over to 18 find million dollars. That's uh, yeah. that's part of the way this works now. And it's interesting in the in the uh, draft of that fifth year option is no longer a guaranteed thing. But for this year, this Jerry year, Jerry Judy will be making less than a quarter of what Corton Sutton makes, right. at least in terms of cap numbers. And what does that mean? Because the Broncos moved for their first selection and picked up Marcus uh, Marvin Mims, pardon me, Marvin Mims Jr. out of uh, Oklahoma, a guy that's uh, only slightly larger than me, though much more athletic, stronger, faster, everything. But Thumbs time, down on K.J. Hamler. Uh, that's what that That's what means. it felt like to me. It felt like K.J. Hamler's time with the Broncos is rapidly coming so, to an end. It's over. And... Uh, you know, too bad in many respects, a product of bad luck and, you know, existing during the pandemic uh, era and being certainly affected uh, physically and psychologically by that. Uh, but to me, the Mims pick was as much the selection of a punt returner as it was the selection always, of a starting wide receiver, which he will not be. That, that, kid, that the Broncos never really insisted on giving Hamler a look as a return man, even though he did return. He did. At Penn State. He did. Uh, the Broncos never wanted to give it a look for whatever reason. The, the injuries obviously are significant They will enough. give it a look with men. Uh, obviously, just a couple weeks ago, uh, tore that partially torn pack, had surgery, out probably six months, and it does feel like at least Sean Payton, who's now clearly running the show, yes. has decided, ah, now nah, I'm going to bring my own guy. No. And no. that's, that's I mean, what that feels Sean, to me. Sean Payton. My question did is, did you really need a K.J. Hamler replacement with your first pick? That's my that's my issue, because I think there were far more pressing well, needs on this team than another wide receiver. Maybe, maybe, um, but their argument would be that they addressed some of them. They got the center that everybody was uh, anxious to have them uh, draft, and yes, they got him on the seventh round, but he's considered in most circles to be one of the top five centers and maybe the best senior center in the country this past year, and it's a great story, Alex Forsyth out of Oregon, um, I think they felt they added depth defensively uh, with uh, Sanders, who I, I thought was the best pick they made because he's the number one guy at his position, which is off-ball linebacker. Do not be surprised, if, and I'll say this right now. And I think Moss and Skinner were okay. You're there. looking about uh, at picks that are going to be the first guy to, to crack a rotation and play major snaps. It's going to be Drew Sanders. Unless you unless Mims takes the punt return job, I guess, and that's different. But I, I, I think with all due respect to what Josie Jewell and Alex Singleton have done. This uh, guy can cover. They can. And that's the trick. In today's NFL, if you're gonna play off ball inside, you have can to also be rush a, the passer and they can't. Yeah. You have to be able to rush the passer. Those two guys can't. You have to be able to defend the tight end. Those two guys can't. What what Singleton and Jewell are very good at, and Jewell's very good at diagnosing plays. I don't want to take that away from him. He really is. But these guys are, are very efficient and very effective at sort of hoovering up the tackles they're supposed to get. Yeah, 8 uh, to 10 yards down the field. Singleton and, and Jewel do not have guys break tackles on them, but they're they're not at the line of scrimmage. They're not. It's just, no. yeah, I think Sanders will be starting for this team sooner rather than later. I, I agree. think he has the clearest. Path. And in the meantime, he'll help their special teams. And all these picks, all of them, all five, will be special teams contributors immediately, if not sooner. Uh, more, more than likely, yeah. I mean, uh, Riley Moss, good speed there. A guy that may end up playing safety, may end up being playing corner. They gave up a third round to get him. That's a bit of a gamble, but, uh, you know, we, we shall see. Most analysts who, who look at that a little closer and maybe watch more Iowa football than I do uh, believe that there is a 
that the Broncos at least got him at a spot in the draft, probably lower than he deserved to be picked. And shades of Michael O.J. Mudia or uh, not so much? I, I, I don't but, see... The shades of Michael O.J. Mudia, by that I mean another Iowa corner... That's really better suited as a safety. A lot of people thought would would be eventually, and maybe quite quickly even, a safety rather than a corner, and you hear the same things about Riley Moss. And, and in Moss's case, you might see a guy playing something of um, uh, that some teams hybrid. use, a big nickel hybrid type of role like yeah. that, you know, a guy that can can do a little bit more. He is kind of a ball hawk. Obviously, he's got, you know, good speed, breaks on the ball, good hands. Uh Jail Skinner is a good depth guy for the for for safety. Obviously, you know, the Broncos do need some some depth there. We'll see what happens with Caden Stearns, who they were picked a couple years ago and who I really like and I think can actually handle that starting role opposite of Justin Simmons, but the Broncos are still reportedly kicking the tires on Kareem Jackson again. So uh, who knows? But, I mean, they drafted two safeties, which makes me think that maybe they don't need more safeties. And then, as you pointed out, uh, Forsyth out of Oregon in the mix for the for the center spot. There will be a battle for that as well. So that there are some. I think mean, it was a good draft considering it was, good. It was a five-pick draft. Yes. Now, I, you know, it's, it's tough to compare their draft favorably with teams that had 10, 11, 12 picks. Uh, except for yeah. San Francisco, which had a weird combination of picks they had 11 but they didn't have any until like the 99th pick of the draft so uh, other than san francisco and uh, you know if you're looking at this year um i don't know where you'd rank the arizona cardinals but if you noticed and this is just an example of how evaluating drafts or grading drafts the day after the draft or Mm -hmm. the week after the draft is is a fool's errand you can't judge what Arizona will do next year in the draft, but listen to this. They've got two firsts, a second, three thirds, two fourths, two fifths, and a seventh. That's as things stand right now. And a lot of that was the product of the wheeling and dealing they did. Mm-hmm. You're right. Uh, the Broncos don't appear to be in substantially better shape as far as having a lot of draft picks right next year they don't appear to be in substantially better shape than they were this year to be honest now they will have a first next year yeah that'll be a change over the last couple of years certainly so uh, on the whole you know the broncos uh, improve whether they improve enough you know is that does that does this draft class even get you a win uh, probably not, not off the bat. I mean, we, we shall see, I suppose. So that's that's the trick. You know, the Broncos, I'm, I'm with you. Uh, I think most people, when they put the little letter grades on them, and we realize, you know, that's sort of a, as you said correctly, I think a fool's errand at the same time. Um, I think most people kind of thought a B. It was, yeah, I mean, if, uh, given, again, a good given gra- what a good you draft, had, what, given what they had, you yeah. did a you did a nice job with what you had. Yeah, okay, that's fine. I, I question the need for the receiver, but I could be wrong. And uh, the rest of them, I think you addressed positions of need. I think you got talent that at least the consensus was uh, you may have gotten a slight bargain on some of the uh, the talent based on where you picked, and you certainly hope so. But it, it, it intrigues me to see. Mims be the first. I, I agree completely. My first thought was, well, that's it for KJ Hamler. And yeah. it, it almost and, and second, is. I thought that's your new punt return. And that, I guess. Although my, I hope they make him earn the job. They've had two cases yeah, they just in the last somebody. six, seven years where they just handed the job to somebody 
and he maybe for different reasons in the two cases I'm thinking of uh, didn't work out. But in this case, Mims, let's assume that the Broncos just move on from K.J. Hamler, find an injury settlement, or wait till he's healthy and then move on, whatever they're planning on doing. But you're still talking about Mims in a good situation. If everything's right, he's a number four receiver. And and a potential decoy or, you know, whatever you'd like to what, like to call it. But I, I guess I look at it on a team that's been bad, a team that is bad, a team that's been bad, I just would like to see my second-round pick have uh, potentially more significant impact than be, you know, your fourth wide out and maybe a return man. But we'll see. You By know? the way, uh, the, we're handing out grades, mm-hmm. but some agencies are, including USA Today, yep. which uh, rated the Bronco draft dead last among 32 teams, saying second-round wide receiver Marvin Mims Jr. and third-round linebacker Drew Sanders are flashy but potentially flawed players. I disagree with that uh that aside new head coach sean payton didn't have round one or organic round two picks um notice they identify head coach sean payton as opposed to general manager george payton as being in charge of the draft right and even usa today knows who's running the broncos now and that george payton is not much more than office secretary at this point right I think that's the fair. least empowered. Interesting. The least empowered GM in the NFL is George Payton. And he, if he wasn't the most true. empowered a year ago at this time, he was among the most empowered. If he wasn't at the top of the list, he was on the list. This year, you could argue he's the least empowered executive in the National Football Want to know what your and thoughts the are on the draft? Yeah, well, yeah, certainly the least secure. 303-831-1340 is the number. The next step, of course, on the uh, on the NFL schedule is, well, the schedule. That'll probably be uh, released. The expectation is May 11th at the moment is the, uh, the, the schedule. We know, of course, uh, to my mind, that's always the most overrated day in the NFL offseason because you already know who all the opponents are. But uh, you'll know what order they're in. Very, very exciting. Just a couple of weeks from now. So remember, by the way, baseball is back. The greatest so is... day in sports. Yeah, I used to NFL say that schedule. sarcastically about oh. the draft, but I can't say it anymore because the draft's three days, not right. one. But the schedule release is one day, and just about everyone, including many people I respect, make far too much of it. Yes. Yes, the best part of it is the uh, team's social media groups put together funny videos to release it, but uh, right. that's that's what you're looking forward to. Baseball is back, by the way, and the push for postseason's on for hockey and hoops, minus, of course, one local squad, but make it all count this spring with Superbook Sports. Superbook Sports is the best wagering app around with a direct line to experienced bookmakers behind the counter in Las Vegas, and plus, right now, you get a $250 bonus when you sign up, deposit, and wager all on the same day. So don't let spring pass you by without winning money with Superbook Sports. Visit Superbook.com for terms and conditions. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. The Denver Nuggets had a smashing playoff debut in their second round series with the Phoenix Suns. Can they do it again? What did they do right? Can they duplicate it? We'll talk about it next on Mile High Sports. This is Sandy Clough 
and Chandro Tar on Mile High Sports. Tonight at 8 p.m. on TNT, or, you know, roughly there of, depending on the end of the uh, Celtic Sixers game. By the way, Joel Embiid not expected to play in game one if you're the Sixers. That is a problem. Sneaking suspicion that might make a difference. I would imagine so. It it would be why the line for uh, Boston moved to uh, nine-and-a-half-point favorites tonight. Yikes. So, Suns and Nuggets will have game two. Obviously, uh, the, the Nuggets had a tremendous performance in game one, nearly um, as close to a perfect offensive game as you can almost have, uh, with the exception of the, the one guy that was a little bit off was Jokic. But they certainly didn't need it, Jamal Murray. <laughs> isn't, it, isn't it funny when yeah. we say Jokic is a little bit off? And puts up the that means uh, nine out of 21 from the field. Not uh, nine for 30, not, uh, you know, six for 20. It's nine for twenty-one, which is yes, below forty-five percent. But it's well below his customary percentage. But I didn't think Jokic was ineffective. I thought he was an afterthought uh, because Jamal Murray. All he had was twenty-four and nineteen. Show. Well, yeah, <laughs> no, that's but the thing. Murray went thirty-four, five, and nine with six threes, with six threes and a couple of steals, and uh, you know. It, the, the the guy in the starting lineup whose whose numbers were the worst in many ways was Porter, Porter. who was plus twenty nine in thirty one minutes and actually so a, a, he a was pretty, pretty good darn too. efficient five for nine shooting yes he didn't take a ton of shots so anytime you score more points that your point total is higher than your, your field goal yeah. attempts uh, are good. you've played well played well you played efficiently and the Nuggets had all that. Uh, Good to great games off the bench from the two Browns, uh, Bruce and Christian, B-R-A-U-N. And uh, the Nuggets got away with uh, a game that, that shows you how much, as we pointed out in the first round, how much uh, shooting percentage is almost totally irrelevant in the playoffs. Again, shot attempts. The Nuggets took 17 more field goal attempts. And they were minus one in effect from the foul line. Phoenix had 17 attempts to Denver's 15. But that works out to plus 16 in field goal attempts. That's how you shoot 47.5% and win a game by 18 points against a team that shot better than 51%. In the regular season, the Nuggets had 11.2% more shot attempts than the Suns. And out of all teams in the NBA in the regular season. And granted, things changed at the end of the tail when Durant got there. The Suns took the fewest shots. Now, it's also because they're stunningly they also efficient. took the fewest threes. threes. And as uh, John Hollinger pointed out, fine piece in the wake of game one, in this series, not that Phoenix won't be in it and maybe still win the series, but the math doesn't work for them. Right. Uh, you, you can't take 23 threes in today's game when the other team's taking 37. Now, as it happened, Phoenix shot poorly, even on just 23 attempts, making only seven, 30.4%. The Nuggets were at 43.2%. That probably is for 37. Well, maybe not. Okay. 43, maybe not. I doubt. But 
Phoenix has to take and make more threes. Have to. There's the other because part the math things. is not going to work for them. They can shoot 55% in this series. Denver can shoot 45% in the series. And the Nuggets will win by an average score of at least 10 points if they don't begin to hunt for three-point shots. And uh, if they continue to pass them up, as they did the other day, it's it's going to be a long series because Murray's not passing them up and Porter's not passing them up. And even Gordon the other day, and I take your point, this probably won't happen again. Even Gordon looked like a confident three-point shooter. And frankly, Gordon outplayed Kevin he better, Durant. He better not day. get too confident. That's my concern as he goes back and starts bombing away from But he three didn't again. take a lot of shots for a guy who scored 23 no, points. No, he didn't. He played very well. And and the the point you make is sound. That's what I was going to go get into today as well. Because what we've seen Phoenix, not only before Durant, but with Durant, because Durant actually likes this as well. In a league where sort of, you know, the three-point shooting reigns supreme now, and and because of the way that, that things are structured, now that we're getting a more advanced metric, sort of effective field goal percentage and what shots from certain areas are worth because of the likely percentage of it, the Suns are playing sort of a very odd game. They prefer the mid-range. And the funny thing is that's been even more pronounced as getting Durant. Yes. Uh, since that, in the playoffs alone, the Nuggets take 31.3% of their shots from the rim. The Suns, 22.3. It's a big difference. Now, of course, those are very high percentage shots. Three points, the Nuggets take 33%, even more than they take from the rim. 33.7 to be precise. The Suns take 25%. So the Suns do not, and this is, by the way, out of the teams in the playoffs, this includes the play-in games. The Suns, percentage of shots at the rim, 20th. Yeah. Yeah. That's dead last. I I think the Suns' three-point thresh percent. 20th. It, it, there's some issues. And again, I, I fully expect Phoenix to bounce back and obviously play a much more competitive game tonight, uh, possibly even win it. Again, the game to let down after you win the first and game. Especially at home so is such dominant. Yeah. It is, is all, you know, Phoenix won't play as poorly as it did. Now, that doesn't mean that the Nuggets can't win or won't win, uh, but it will be a different game. Here's where the numbers come in for me. Uh, Phoenix shot 55% in the first half, and the Suns are down 17 at that. Five three-point field goal attempts in the first half. Five. Now, it, it, I, I say 23 is low, but a lot of them came in garbage time late at the end where they're just heaving the ball from three-point range and well beyond when they were way behind, the game was over. They average, um, let's see, uh, again, right around 23 attempts, and they were minus nine on three-point makes, 16 to seven in game one. You can't be not minus nine on threes and win in the play. No. Or win in the regular season. Not for usually. that for that matter, you can't be now, their defense has to be a little bit better than it was, but boy, Murray put on the full display the other day. And I'm reading a, a book right now, a very good book by Ben Golliver, entitled Bubble Ball, you know, the story of the NBA and the bubble back in twenty twenty. 
And uh, the interesting thing is it took him 172 pages to get to the Nuggets at all. But once he did, um, you you really got the full Jamal Murray effect, and it was a memory refresher for me in that as, as good as Jokic was, and Jokic is plenty good, the Nuggets star in the bubble was Murray. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, I, I think Murray speaks to the aggressive posture that makes the Nuggets a dangerous team more than does Jokic, who is the Nuggets version of Tim Duncan. And Murray is really the dynamic personality force on the team. And you heard him after yes. game I've one said that for talking yeah. about the doubters, which really I don't think include necessarily media all that much and more the perception around the league of the Nuggets. And it was interesting to me that Durant went out of his way even before game one to pay tribute to the Nuggets. But I don't think that opinion is shared by very many people around the league. Durant gave some voice to it, and I think he was sincere. I don't think it was anything kind of buttering up the opposition to make them uh, overconfident or complacent or anything like that. But I, I think Murray is speaking to a wider perception of the Nuggets that does exist, mm-hmm. that they're a cute little team. Yeah. Yes. I, and, I, a, I, and a purest delight. You know, the purest love the Nuggets because of Jokic, right? He is an analytic person's dream. Mm-hmm. That absolutely, you know, the analytics love him more than the people the, who just the analytics watch him love the Nuggets as well. Especially when you're right. looking at the way, the but, way but they that play. that yeah. makes them kind of a cute team, right? Rather than a legitimate powerhouse, and they played like a powerhouse. It was a with statement. a chip on their shoulder. That was a the, the other day, and that's what struck me. They, they won't win four games by 18 points. But if they were to win tonight's but, game, and I know you, you, you'd just be holding court at home, but if they were to win tonight's game. It, it's bigger than most game twos because of the layoff. Yes, and the and the pressure that it would build on a Phoenix supposed super team would be pretty immense. I think this is a key game in the series. Winning tonight's more game for the Nuggets would be More important huge. than most game twos because – the loser has three days to stew. Mm-hmm. And if it's the Nuggets, they've lost home court. If it's the Suns, they're down 0-2. And, yeah, they're going back home, but they got to wait three days to play again. Uh, I don't think fatigue beat them the other day. They, no. they played more guys than the Nuggets did. Christian Brown only played 14 minutes for Denver. Murray played 37, Durant which played 36. was a little more than he should have played. Uh Jokic right on what you'd like to see, ideally, 33 minutes. And Durant played fewer minutes than Murray or Aaron Gordon. It wasn't fatigue. Well, no. No, I'm not say, saying it was. I I was a little, and this seemingly is a Michael Malone thing, that with a little more than three minutes to go before they called timeout and pulled everybody, they, they've got five stars out there, and I said, what I are you it doing? Was, it seemed pretty dangerous. I will say this. You sort of hope, and I, I don't like talking about NBA officiating, but you have to, but give credit to the crew in game one 
who clearly was, one, letting the teams play, and two, not falling for the stuff that we saw, we've seen actually all over the NBA at times, where, you know, guys take a shot and fly into somebody else hoping for an offensive foul or a defensive foul, and it should be offense or nothing. Uh, I thought the game was officiated very well in game one. There weren't a lot of free throws. No, each team only had 17 or so, not a lot of fouls. 17 for Phoenix, you're right, and 15 for the Nuggets. It wasn't a foul fest. Uh, It didn't disturb the rhythm of the game. And believe me, Booker and Durant both live live at the free throw line. They want that. And so they're going to be out there tonight fishing for fouls. And if the officiating hopefully does something similar to what we saw in in game one, uh, I I clearly thought in parts of that game that Durant and Booker were very frustrated. They thought they should be getting fouls, even though they're sitting there just popping mid-range jumpers. And so... you know, I don't know. I, I I don't I don't know that I sense that much frustration. I know the announcers talk about it, but the announcers talk about a lot of things that are silly. And I I like Spiro Didis and I like Grant Hill. Um, I I was it, it, I think they were disappointed. The game was a blowout, and they got bored. And when they got bored, they started saying some silly things. And one of the silly things they said was that you know they made it out like Durant was beside himself because he wasn't getting certain. No, he wasn't. I saw shots of him on the bench. Late in the game, he wasn't steaming. They were, uh, Booker wasn't either. Uh, Murray was the best player on the floor. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think that'll be true with every game in this series, but it was certainly true uh, in game one. Uh, the Nuggets were much the better team. Uh, game one is not always an indicator of how a series will go, but I think it raised some questions in the minds of the Suns about, Again, simply the math, how you compete against one of the better, more efficient three-point shooting teams when you don't even take a lot of threes and you rely on a a constant parade to the foul line and you rely on incredible shooting accuracy. And, you know, if they shoot 51.2% for the series, I'd be surprised. They, They shot that way the other day and lost by... 18 points and so i i think a nugget hidden strength is that they do fly around on the wings and obviously you've got brown and brown coming off the bench and they definitely do it gordon and even porter doing that the other day they're springy athletic players and they had an effect when they're not standing around, that's a much better team. We will see what they do in see tonight's game. what Bruce Brown said too. after the game? Mm-hmm. Basically, we're so much better when we run. Right. Um, I hope they can convince the head coach of that because during the season, the head coach was anything but convinced, and historically, he wants to walk it up. They don't practice running, so they don't run. The other day, they ran. They won easily and conserved a lot of energy in so doing. We'll see what happens tonight. We'll get back to this later in the program as well. But we want to talk about the end of the Colorado Avalanche season much sooner than they had hoped. Kyle Fredrickson of the Denver Gazette will join us next to talk about it on Miley Sports. Beyond the power, semi-power, 